Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. As well. And the title of my message today, if you're taking notes, is Blinders. Blinders. Now, we're getting close to the holiday season. Anybody, you couldn't be more excited that the holidays are almost here. It, uh, some of you, uh, not excited because you're like, oh, no, they snuck up on us this year. They're already here. There's a sense of panic because you don't feel ready or just a sense of dread because you hate your family. So it, it could be a lot of things. I don't know what's going on with you. Um, but uh, this time of year, you know, uh, as we count on to Thanksgiving, which is coming up this next week, uh, one of the things we do in my family is Thanksgiving is sort of the mark where we're allowed to begin watching Christmas movies around the house, playing Christmas music, and decorating for the holidays. Uh, how many of you, that is your rule? you got to wait till the proper time. How many of you, you're just like, you know what? As soon as Halloween's over, it's Christmas. You know what I mean? <laughs> A few of you. Okay, that's fine. Uh, go through Rooted and just learn discipleship. <laughs> that should not be... <laughs> Some people are like that. And, uh, and so it's got me thinking about, you know, Christmas and Christmas gifts and things like that. And I was remembering this thing that happened between me and my parents when I was quite a bit younger, uh, this Christmas where uh, we always sp- were supposed to make Christmas lists. And this one year I made a Christmas list and it just had one thing on it. You ever do this as a kid where they're like, you know, what's a few things? And your parents are expecting you to put like underwear, Tootsie Rolls, you know, just whatever, a bunch of random stuff. They're opening a lot of cheap stuff, but there's just one expensive thing that you want. And so you just put that and then you put this on your parents, which is real fun. If I don't get this, it'll be the worst Christmas ever. (laughs) What a manipulation, right? As a kid, I I didn't, I'm not just like, you know what? It's not my problem. Uh, I wasn't aware I was putting any stress on them. It was God's problem or Santa. I'm sure they're in cahoots somehow. I don't know how it all works. I don't need to know I'm eight years old. Not my problem. And so I asked for this specific high dollar gift. And uh, like now I know a bunch of things about my family and my parents at that time that I I did not know then, right? I know now that we were very poor Uh, I know now that they didn't have money to even come close to buying something like that. But my parents scrimped and saved. They drove all over town. They went to multiple stores. They did everything they could possibly do to get this gift for me because I was convinced that I wouldn't be happy unless I got it. How many of you parents have ever done this errand before where you've gone to like 15 stores, you've gone to all the places, you tried to like buy it off of somebody in the parking lot behind a dumpster, you know what I mean? You're like, I'll give you anything in my car. I'll trade you one of these other kids for it. I don't know. You're just like trying to do everything you can because you love your kids, you want them to be happy. And my parents got the thing, it had to be assembled. My dad stays up all night assembling it, putting a big bow on it. Then they did this big scavenger hunt, right, which they had to put together. So I open up a little thing and it tells you to go somewhere else and then somewhere else and somewhere else. Anybody ever done this thing? And then you get to the final location and like my sisters open up the shed and there is the brand new gift that I wanted, that I required, that I demanded, that my parents went and found. And you know what my response was? And this is why my dad left our family. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
But now that I am a dad, I'm like, you know what? Wouldn't have blamed him, right? Just, they're expecting them to be like, oh my God, oh my God. Instead, I, this is what I, I legitimately did this. I'm so embarrassed about this now as an adult. But I was like, oh, I wanted blue. Wow, some of you are like, you're going to hell. Is that why you became a pastor? Just that moment to save your own life? I'm so ashamed now, especially now that I'm an adult and I'm a parent and I know what parents go through to try and do things that their kids aren't even aware of to give their kids everything that they could possibly want and need and even just things that they think would make them happy. And kids are so hard to please. And I was such a jerk. At the time though, as a kid, did I know I was a jerk? No, in my mind, my dad is the jerk because he did not get me what I asked for. This is the wrong color. Black is not blue. And my dad was like, about to beat you black and blue. You need to get it together. I know he thought it, but he didn't act on it. And that's what makes him a good man. And here's why I bring this up. I don't think this thing that I did when I was eight years old, I don't think this is a kid thing. I think this is a human thing. Because we all have this thing that happens to us where the more focused you are on getting what you want to be happy, the less aware you are of what your pursuit of happiness is costing those around you. You get blinders on. The reason why I wasn't aware of what it was costing other people because I wasn't thinking about them. I didn't care. I was focused on me and what I wanted and what I was trying to get. And I think when we find ourselves in these moments, even as grown people, right, it's not just that you don't care about what it's costing other people. It's that you're not even aware of what it's costing them. And maybe you have had a few of these realizations as a grown up at this stage of your life where you realize suddenly that your preoccupation with looking good was actually keeping you from tending to the emotional needs of the people around you. You building your facade was preventing you from caring about your community. And maybe you realize that like your obsession with your middle-aged softball team, right, meant that nobody else could actually plan anything on Saturday or do anything that would possibly compete with this thing that you want to do. Or maybe you realize suddenly that your desperate desire to highly achieve at work and get ahead and get a promotion was actually meaning that you weren't paying attention to what was going on at home. And usually we don't discover this until it's too late. We don't discover the cost of the pursuit of our happiness until we have to pay that cost. And a lot of times we can assume like, listen, the reason that these other people don't want to be around me is because of what I'm doing. But I think that that's not entirely true because oftentimes whatever thing that we're drawn to, our compulsion, our addiction, the thing that we're pursuing to try and make ourselves happy, when we stop doing that thing, the relationships still don't recover. We think like, oh, you're just upset because I'm doing this. So if I stop doing that, things will be okay. But then they're not okay. And we're confused by that. And the reason is our connections fall apart because Pursuing our addictions causes us to disregard the expectations, feelings, needs, and boundaries of others. And that's the real problem. And this is the thing that kids have not been educated on yet. I didn't really care about the expectations, 
feelings, needs, and boundaries of my dad when I was eight years old. Because obviously he exists to serve me in every way, shape, or form. And he's not even a real person. He's a dad, right? This is the way kids think. Unfortunately, this isn't something that everyone grows out of when they grow up. We just get bigger. We don't get more mature. And sometimes we get trapped in these cycles where we don't realize the damage we're doing to other people. And I would tell you, if you've spent any amount of time with an addict in your life, you need to know that there's a good chance they have no idea how bad they've hurt you. And the reason is because they're not thinking about you. They're entirely focused on themselves. And here's what's unfortunate. I think we all fall into this trap. We all get sort of seduced by what we want in order to make us happy. And we don't realize the cost and the toll it's taking on other people. One of the New Testament writers wrote this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. Don't just be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. This is one of those phrases that's so simple where you're like, yeah, that's obvious. Why would you need to say something that sounds obvious? Because people aren't living as if it is obvious. People aren't actually putting it into practice. And what is interesting to me is Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says this in a conversation with people who just kind of want to do what they want to do, which happens in this context to be eating food offered to idols. And uh, people thought, man, if you eat food that was offered, somebody prayed over it, like, but to a God that's not uh, our, our God, the God that's not even a real God, um, then that means you're supporting that God. And Paul's like, nah, I don't really see it like that. It's just barbecue. Um, and so it's not really, uh, it's not a bad thing or sinful thing for you to do, but it is causing problems for the people around you. And so maybe think about it. Maybe don't just think about what you want to do to be happy, but what is actually how you're affecting the people around you. And what he wants Christians to see is centering your life on Jesus means paying attention to how the things you say and do impact those around you. Which means this, you cannot follow Jesus and be inconsiderate of others. And some of us are, are like, wow, uh, there are a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians and aren't following Jesus. Yeah, that is what we're saying today. And there is a difference between trying to own the label of Christian and being a Jesus follower. I think a lot of times we kind of get prideful and we think like, you know what? I am just standing up for Jesus. That's why I'm a jerk. And Jesus is like, that's not really how we do it. Um, maybe get a different label. I don't want to be lumped in with that. First John chapter four, verse 20. One of Jesus' closest friends says this. Whoever claims to love God but hates their brother and sister is a liar. Whoever does not love those they can see cannot love God who they cannot see. And when John uses the words love and hate here, he's not talking about the way we feel towards other people. He's talking about the way our actions affect other people. And so what he's saying here is if you're just doing what you want to do, ignoring the harm that it does to others, that's unloving. Because the more we love God, the more loving we ought to treat others. The more we love God, the more loving we ought to treat others. This in Jesus' mind is the mark of maturity. Jesus could spot if somebody was really close to God, not because they knew a ton of scripture and because they did all the right things and because they had all this and they dressed a certain way. 
It was because I can tell that you love God so much and have drawn close to God because of how lovingly you treat other people. And where did New Testament writers get this idea? It's a weird place. Jesus, um, as it turns out. Because as the early followers of Jesus are watching his life, when people built a relationship with him, like it always resulted in them being more considerate of and sacrificial towards others. And I want to just share a story today of an example of this happening to someone who builds a relationship with Jesus. This is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through town. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector in the region and was very rich. He tried to get a look, but he was too short. And so he ran ahead and climbed a tree to get a better view. So already we know the same two things that everybody in this town knows about Zacchaeus. He's known for two things. Number one, being short. Number two, collecting taxes. And when I was a kid, anybody else grew up in Sunday school? There was a song about Zacchaeus. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? It was like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Inappropriate. Okay, you can't say that. That is not okay. I can't believe we sang that. Like, today, if your kid went up and said, look at that wee little man over there, you would just be like, not my kid. You know, you pretend like you didn't even know who that kid was. Horrible, right? Also, not only is it not politically correct, it's not kind. And here's the reason. None of us want to be most known by our biggest insecurity. Think about that for a second. Imagine if everybody around knew you according to the one thing you hated most about yourself. Imagine the damage that would do to you as a person. And tax collecting for the Roman government That wouldn't have made him very popular either because Rome didn't really care how you got their money as long as they got there. So you could, you know, take as much as you wanted for yourself on the side. Oftentimes tax collectors used soldiers to squeeze the people dry and make themselves rich. And Zacchaeus was a Jew working for the non-Jewish Roman government who was in charge of collecting taxes from his own people. So he was a traitor and people hated him for it, which makes me wonder this. Why would someone do that? Like, why would someone choose to do something regularly that they knew was going to make them hated by their own people? And I think it's possible that the reason this guy does this is because he never really felt like he belonged. Here's the reality. If you're already convinced that the people around you don't accept you, there's not much risk in doing one more thing they don't like because they didn't like you to begin with. You're already an outsider. You're already a misfit. But the issue with this is nobody can live in a state of relational rejection for a long period of time because We are made to have deep relationships with other people. And so we eventually search for where to go and what we need to do to satisfy our built-in need for belonging. And you know what Zacchaeus was good at? Money. He was good at finances. He was good at reading people. He was good at convincing other people to turn over their resources to him. 
And sure, that alienated him further from the, the people that he grew up with. But you know who liked this side of him? The Romans. And so he's thinking, who cares what the small-minded, poor religious people I grew up around think? You know who likes me? The people who are actually running the world. And this is why I think Zacchaeus' addictions were power, money, achievement, and attention. This story goes on to say in verse 5 that Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, that's his name. Come down, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. And Zacchaeus took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. They did not like that Jesus was going there. Because you know what they were thinking? Why is Jesus hanging out with them? Jesus ought to tell this piece of scum what a horrible sinner he is and what he needs to do to get his life together. And you know what made them even more angry? Jesus didn't do any of that. In fact, as you look at this story, you know what Jesus is doing with this guy? Eating, talking, and laughing. And religious onlookers found this infuriating. And Jesus did stuff like this all the time. Because Jesus prioritized connecting with the lost over convincing them they were lost. Because he believed that if he could connect with them and love them and give them what they were missing, they would eventually let go of the lesser things that are filling their life and grab hold of what is truly fulfilling. And, and this was Jesus' genius. He had this ability to see through the eyes of other people. When Jesus encountered people like Zacchaeus, you know, he, he seemed to wonder, like, why is this person like this? What kind of circumstances created this in them? Like, what sort of pain would push someone to live their life persecuting other people? And then Jesus, after thinking about those questions, would treat that person with unconditional love, friendship, and acceptance, and wait to see what would happen. And Paul, uh, one of the first Christians, writes about it this way. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Don't you see? how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Now, I know some of you are thinking like, yeah, but that won't work. Kindness doesn't teach people to turn from their sin. It, it doesn't work, except that it actually did many, many times, including inside of this story. And as Jesus is taking this approach with this man, this is what happens next. Luke chapter 19, beginning of verse 8, says this. Then Zacchaeus stood up before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. Which is, I mean, he's a notoriously greedy guy. This is amazing and miraculous. This is surprising. Everyone would have been like, whoa, what is happening right now? Was anyone recording that, please? But also, I think like, this happens just to us in general. Like when we experience some sort of a breakthrough in our lives, we feel amazing and we want to pay it forward, right? You ever been around somebody who had just had something that great happened in their life and they feel they're so charged up about ways in which they've grown personally. And they're just like, I just want to love people and, and do good things. And you're like, that's great. And 
I mean, I think they really mean it. It's, I mean, it's a little bit generic. You don't really know what they mean, and neither do they. But they really feel it in their bones. And I, I think that in reality, everyone's willing to do generic good. It's specific good we struggle with, especially when that good involves making amends for the specific bad we did. Nobody would say, oh, I don't want to be a good person. I don't want to do good things. But it's when you're like, what about this good thing to make amends for the bad you did in other people's lives? Because you were so focused on what you wanted to be happy that you burnt them in the process. How about going back and making up for, oh, I don't want to do that kind of good. I was thinking something more, you know, generic. This is why it's so much easier to serve strangers than people you have a history with. Anybody else notice this? This is why we say things like, I'll volunteer at a food pantry, but I will not help my neighbor build his pantry because that guy's a jerk. I'm not going to do that. I'll show up anytime for the ladies in my women's group, day or night. I will do this. But uh, I am not going to text my sister back, okay? <laughs> because, listen, I just, I'm not going to explain to you, but that witch knows what she did, okay? I'll post like generic apologies on Facebook about things that a lot of people saw me do, but I'm not going to sit down face to face and sincerely apologize to my wife for what I've put her through the last few weeks. Generic good we're fine with is the specific good we fight to avoid. But here's what's really weird about this story. Zacchaeus, totally unprompted, does get specific. Here's the second part of that verse. He says this, if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And if I was his accountant, I'd be like, four times, maybe like just start, like I'll give it back. You know what I mean? Like uh, he's really just like excited right now. But that's not even the most interesting part of what he says. Here's the most interesting part of him saying this. It's the first word, if. Everybody within earshot would have been like, if, if you cheated people, if you were a selfish jerk, do you know you? Have you met you? If, of course you have. You've cheated everybody in this whole community. Four times, you're gonna be broke living on the street if you actually do this thing. And I don't think he says this because he's unaware that he's ever been wrong or done anything wrong. I think he says this because he doesn't see how badly his actions have hurt other people because he stopped asking how his actions were affecting other people a long time ago. But his impulse after having a real encounter with the real Jesus is naturally unprompted. Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. His natural impulse with encountering the love of God is to intuitively devote himself to recovery steps eight and nine. Recovery step number eight says this, make a list of everyone you've harmed and become willing to make amends with them. And here's why we have to do this because seeing life from someone else's perspective won't happen automatically it requires intentionality. If you just sort of go through your life, you will automatically mostly just think about you. 
You have to try to actually be considerate of others. And some things are easier to see from other people's perspective than others. Like we've all seen enough movies about alcoholics to figure out for ourselves, you know what, I probably shouldn't have gotten drunk at my sister's wedding and punched that random guy that I realized later was not random, he was the groom. But listen, <laughs> that was inappropriate and that probably hurt her feelings, okay? And I definitely need to do something about that. But other more socially acceptable things are harder for us to see. We, 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 we find it more difficult to come across things like, you know what, um, I just realized my preoccupation with getting a promotion has caused me to miss a lot of dinners and games and special moments around my house. And I think if I were to think about this from my kids' perspective, that would be really hurtful to them. It's harder for us to have observations like, you know what, my obsession with just keeping my home perfect and dialed is preventing me from being present with the people around me and hearing their stories and showing an interest in their lives and living in the moment to actually make the most of the memory that's unfolding in real time. And once we have this realization, once we've made this list, step eight brings us to step nine, which is to make direct amends to others whenever possible, except when it would injure them or others. And this is tough because here's the thing, you cannot redo the past. In fact, I don't think you can make up for it either. All you can really do is work to repair the relationship in the here and now. And that is uncomfortably humbling because of this one reality. They get to decide when the relationship is repaired and what it's going to take to repair it, not you. And we hate that. And then this step tells us that we should do that thing unless it would injure someone, which is a nice ad, right? Because if you asked a, one of my kids when they were really angry at their siblings, like, what does your brother need to do to make things up to you? They would be like, how about he hits himself in the face with a hammer and jumps off the roof? I feel like that would make me feel all kinds of better. And it's like, okay, so that's a violation of step nine, second, second part. That sounds more like a revenge plot. And the caveat here in step nine is to remind us that making amends is about restoration, not retribution. It's not about getting somebody back for what they've done. It's about putting things back together. And this is what we're challenged to do both in AA and in the New Testament. And I gotta tell you from experience, these two steps are not fun which is why you're probably thinking right now, yeah, I don't want to do them. Say sorry and do everything I can to make things right between me and that person. No, it sounds painful. And if you think this sounds unfun and very painful, I just want you to know the writers of the New Testament agree with you. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, which has kind of been a theme passage for this series for us, the author says this. He says, our early fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. 
And I love that this passage begins with the author just acknowledging, listen, you may have an aversion to discipline because your parents didn't do a good job at it or they took it too far. And then the author goes a step further and says this, I want to remind you, God is not your parents. God is different. God is better. God is holier. God is higher. In fact, God always has your best interest at heart. But that doesn't mean that everything he asks you to do will be pain-free. And here's what is also interesting about God. He also won't make you do it. You have to choose to do so on your own. But if you do, you'll be glad that you did. And although it's likely that you realize what amends that you ought to make uh, will be horribly inconvenient at times. Jesus says to make them anyway. In fact, sometimes it's so inconvenient to do, and that's why it's so much more powerful when you do it. Listen to how extreme this is. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in church and you suddenly remember someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Anybody else not like this? You're allowed to not like parts of the Bible. It doesn't mean they're not true. It just means they frustrate you. It's called conviction. And here's what's wild. You're here right now thinking about your compulsions in church, hoping to break free from some of those things, wanting to be made right with God. But what I think God is wanting you to hear from him in return is if you want to get better, you are going to have to get up from this place and you're going to have to go attempt to make things right with them. You know who I'm talking about. If it's forgiveness that you're looking for from me, from God, you've already got it. Like the moment you asked for it, it was yours. But I can see your heart. That person, other people only have the ability to see your actions, which means there may be some stuff you need to do to repair things between you. And what makes this really sticky is sometimes the thing we're addicted to isn't even a bad thing. But the way we've gone about it the space it's taken up in our lives and the damaging ripple effect it's had on others has cost us and them a lot. Addiction is interesting because sometimes recovery means walking away from a thing altogether. You don't do that at all anymore. But addressing every addiction will require you to partner with God to rearrange your priorities. There's no avoiding that. And according to scripture, the number one priority in all of our life is relationships. Relationship with God and with others. So here's my challenge for you today. To identify in your life someone your behavior has hurt. To sincerely apologize and ask how you can make it right. And some of you are just like, but I've heard a lot of people. Right, um, but you can get too overwhelmed. You gotta address all those people this week. Just pick one. 
And I know you're thinking like, well, what if, what if it doesn't go good? What if they snap and start lecturing me and condemning me even further? What if they don't even wanna make things right? What about that? And here's the reality. I can't guarantee that won't happen. In fact, for some of you, the relationship that you're thinking about is so volatile, you probably shouldn't have that conversation by yourself. You should take somebody with you that is safe and can support you. But here's the question I think that these New Testament authors are trying to get us to wrestle with. What if, what if that conversation of you admitting that your pursuit of the things that have become important to you have gotten between you and them in hurtful ways? What if you admitting this to them, apologizing and asking how you can make it better? What if it was the beginning of healing for both you and them? And if it is, it likely won't happen right away, overnight, automatically. It'll evolve over time. But with God's help, I think you can put your life back together. I think you can put a life back together that's even better than the one you had before. And what is wild about Zacchaeus' story is that we don't know what happens next. He makes this big proclamation and then he runs off, hopefully to do it. Maybe, I don't know, we don't know. And Jesus leaves town and that's kind of all we get. And I think the author doesn't tell us what's next because I think partially he doesn't want to guarantee a certain outcome for us. That if I do this, the other person is always going to do that because that's not realistic. Because the outcome of your apology and your attempt to make amends, that's not within your control. Initiating the action is. And that's, that's all God is asking you to do. You can't control what happens, but you can humble yourself. You can become self-aware of how your pursuits are affecting and impacting other people. You can own it and you can seek to make it right. I know so many people who have been able to let go of addictions in their life because they're constantly thinking, not about how unfun that thing is, because usually the things that we get addicted to are very fun. <laughs> they're thinking about how much it actually costs them and the people around them. They have a ritual of doing that and it becomes not worth it. For me to get this, cost you that, I can't hurt you in that way. The first step is becoming aware of that, making a list of where that's true, sitting down with those people and owning where you've gone off the rails. I'm telling you, the byproduct of this is always healing. Sometimes it's the healing between the two of you. Sometimes not. But there's always healing that happens in your own heart. And that's the thing that changes your perspective and sets you free. And that's what I think God wants for you. So I want to pray this into your life today. Would you bow your heads across this room? Close your eyes. It just helps you to sort of focus, not be distracted by the people around you. And I want to pray for all of you here in this place today. But today particularly, we've seen so much life change. We've seen so many examples of how God has transformed people. Here's what we believe, that the foundation 
of your life changing comes from you acknowledging your need for God and a willingness to allow him to call the shots in your life instead of you. We call it saying yes to Jesus. And I wanna give you an opportunity this morning to make that commitment today, to have that conversation with God today, maybe for the first time, for the first time that you've really meant it. And if you're in a place today where your life is being held down by so many things that you cannot break free from because you're still trying to run your own life instead of allowing God to do it for you. And you wanna say yes to Jesus with nobody looking around. Would you just slip a hand up this morning so I can pray for you specifically? I'm not gonna call you out or make you stand up or embarrass you in any way, but I wanna pray for you this morning that as you pray along in your heart that God would transform you from the inside out. Awesome. God, I know you see every single hand. More importantly, you see every single heart in this place. You know what we're going through. You know what we're struggling with. You know all of the things that we have done, like Zacchaeus, to try and fit in and feel like we belong and feel good about our life and our existence and our day-to-day. And you know how those things have damaged us and the people around us, how we have now become enslaved to the things that we thought were going to give us more freedom. And today, as we open our hearts and our minds to you, as we are humble in your presence, as we confess to you, where we're at and what we need from you. God, I pray that in a moment, in a heartbeat, that you would swoop into each life here that opens themselves to you, that you would wipe their sin slate clean, that you would lift the shame from their life and that you would put them on a path to live their lives according to your will and your way that they would receive everything you have for them. As they're willing to embrace the pain of discipline, they would experience the gift that comes on the other side of it, and it will feel worth it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.